0: The Window Store is your locally owned and operated go-to source for high-quality updates at affordable prices. They specialize in windows, kitchen refacing, roofing, and entry doors. After 20-plus years of going above and beyond for homeowners in Minnesota and in Wisconsin, they are proud to be one of the top home improvement companies in the country. With over 900-plus reviews on Google and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, You can count on them to provide you with the best possible experience. Now, they're a company that you can depend on for your current and future projects, all backed by their done right guarantee. They'll provide you with straightforward, honest pricing and ensure that you are getting the best products for your needs installed by trained, licensed and certified professionals. You can visit them online at www.windowstoreinc.com and let them guide you through every step of the process from start to finish. Welcome to Black and Blue with AK and Officer Jai. I am your What's co-host, up? AK Kamara, and I'm Jai Hansen. How you doing, brother? Good to see you. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 1. Jai and I have known each other for a few years and we kind of decided it's it's time that we do something together. Myself, I've been involved in politics for the last 16 years. And over the last 16 years, I've learned so much that I think is impactful to people every single day. And the purpose of this podcast is to be able to bring together different ideas and people that have been beat up in the media, black and blue. On top of it, you're looking at two beautiful black people, and one of them is actually law enforcement. So, Jod, tell us a little bit about yourself, man.
1: Yeah, man. My name's Jai Hansen. I've been in law enforcement for seventeen years, and uh, I'm I'm fairly new to the political scene, but I got uh, one campaign under my belt, and uh, um, that is what kind of motivated me to get more into this and be an advocate for people that don't have a voice, especially with public safety. So I'm excited to do this with you.
0: Yeah. So at this point, we really want to be able to stress to everyone that. We want to bring together very important topics. We're gonna bring in analysis that's coming both from a political, philosophical, ideological perspective, and also from a law enforcement. And that's really what this podcast is gonna be about. Our guest today is someone that most of you should know if you pay any attention to politics in the state of Minnesota. And that's none none other than Republican candidate, Dr. Scott Jensen, who is running for governor of Minnesota, Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing, Scott?
2: It's great to be here. Thanks so much, AK, and thanks, Jai, for letting me be on.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you coming and stopping by. You know, the purpose of this podcast, again, there's people that are maligned, especially when we're talking about kind of the corporate mainstream media apparatus and narratives get spun. And myself, I've had the privilege of chatting with you um, off, you off camera, off script, and you're one of the most genuine people that I've ever met in politics. And, and like I said, 16 years is what I'm coming to the table with. And so I I think it's so important to be able to have a conversation about what makes Dr. Scott Jensen, Scott Jensen. And, and it's beyond what the narrative is set. And so that's what we want to be able to do on this podcast and have that conversation with you. So I want to just kind of kick things just right off from the jump. And I'm, I'm going to keep this. Um, not like if this is an intro, because by this point, most people know who you are, but I want to know about what drives you to be in politics. Can you tell me a little bit about why you even want to be a public servant?
2: I don't like politics. I'll be very candid. I think politics so oftentimes is an excuse for not getting the job done, but I do like problem solving. And I think as a physician, I've had a chance to have 40 years of working with patients solving problems. One of my key values probably that drives me as a as a family doctor is what C.S. Lewis said many years ago, you will never meet an ordinary person. There are no ordinary people. Every one of us has our story and our story for each of us is as personal and powerful and as impactful as anyone else's. Sometimes we forget that. So if you see someone on the street that you don't give a hoot about because you don't know them, They've got a story, and I think that as a family doctor, I get to know and explore those stories. I ask people questions, and I think that oftentimes that's the way you, you really start the, uh, the process of solving a problem. In politics, there's, I think there's such an urge to pontificate, get in, jump right in, tell you why you should believe what you should believe. I think in real life, so oftentimes it starts with a question. Tell me about yourself. Uh, what do you like doing for fun? Do you have a family? Where did you go to high school? Uh, did you play any sports? What's your favorite book? I just think when we ask questions, we get a chance to uh, get to know the person, and I think it's the same way trying to solve a problem. So for public service now, I think COVID definitely pushed me into the arena. I thought that uh, with COVID pandemic over the last two and a half years, I don't think anybody got it all right. I don't think anybody got it all wrong, and I think that we could do better. I think that we should have done better. I think. Some of the planning that had been going on for the previous 20 years was thrown out the window, and that's problematic. And I think that was one of the biggest reasons why we had some horrific policies put in place in Minnesota. But I think what we all have to do now is pick up the pieces and say, okay, what can we learn from this one? What can we do for the next one? And if I get to be a part of that, uh, I would like to be a part of it. So I think that I was definitely willing to be done with politics after serving a term in the Senate but COVID pushed me forward because I expressed my skepticism. I expressed um, frustration with the fact that I was being told as a physician to change the way I completed death certificates and things like that. And when I said those things, when I said, hold it, you're corrupting the process. I didn't see myself as some big, big time whistleblower. I saw myself as just a family doc in the trenches trying to warn someone that maybe they're doing something they didn't realize. And what happened was nobody gave me the time of day until three or four months later when my license was under investigation.
1: How many times time. have they done that now?
2: Well, now it's, I'm on my fifth investigation. And, uh, wow. and, and, every one of these has come from uh, apparently someone who's never seen me in the office. It's never been about a healthcare service. It's been about my skepticism, my unconventional narrative, uh, my willingness to say, I don't know that I really buy into what you're selling. And I wouldn't think that'd be so problematic, but it, it, it certainly has been.
1: Scott, you talk about not liking politics or politicians because things don't get done. You know, we give our politicians a lot of passes when it comes to failed leadership. Uh, what do you think that line is where, where our society is going to say enough is enough? Or if we were in the private sector, we would not allow this to continuously happen and not hold our leaders accountable. So where is that line and how do we get past that and how do we convey that message uh, so people understand that?
0: That's
2: a great question. It reminds me of that experiment that probably is not politically correct to talk about, but let's go ahead. The uh, boiling frog. So and, you're not, and actually, the experiment doesn't always work out. I've read reports about it. But nevertheless, mm-hmm. the idea is that if you put a frog in water and slowly turn up the heat and slowly turn up the heat, you'll ultimately boil that frog to death. But if you have the water boiling and you drop the frog in the water, you'll jump right out. What that gets at is I think sometimes if you incrementally cheat on someone, you don't follow through with what you said you'd do. If you do it slowly enough, a lot of times you get a pass and you get a pass and you get a pass. But if you go too fast, too quickly, it's like putting the frog in the boiling water and people will react and say, "Uh uh-uh, you don't get to do that. So the question is, where is that line? I think COVID probably pushed us pretty hard, pretty fast towards that line where families were being told, You don't get to protect your family. You don't get to provide for your family. You don't get to continue to work because we're locking you down. Or you don't get to have your child with an individualized education plan going to be taught face-to-face. We're going to lock the school down. And so your child that has some challenges is now going to have a whole lot more challenges because we're going remote. We're going to have the whole school day spent in front of a computer. I think that was a big one. And then I think another one was we're— The leaders, particularly, I think, in Minnesota, with Tim Walls, I think that he's been less than transparent. He's told the public, you may not agree with what I did, but that doesn't mean I'm going to tell you why I did what I did in the public eye. I'm not going to have a debate where you could ask me those questions. I'm not going to do that. And I think people are saying, well, hold it. You, You marginally did the job for four years, and you want the job for another four years. How could you possibly expect us to support you if you're not going to tell us why you did what you did because you hurt our family. You told us that we couldn't bury our loved ones, uh, but we could go to uh, the big box store and buy wine. You told us that our kids couldn't go to school, but um, you could uh, go to the restaurant or the bar up until perhaps 11 o'clock, and that was evidently when the curfew hit for a period of time. I think all those kinds of things really pushed people to a point where they said, we're just not buying what the politicians are selling. So where the exact line is, I'm not sure, but I think it has to do a lot with when you get in the way of people's family, their ability to take care of themselves, to honor their faith and to take care of children. I think that's where you're you're probably getting pretty close to that line and I think that's happened.
0: You know, when we start to have these conversations, it's sometimes hard to to peel past the the narrative and the perception that the media has helped to shape. And also the other campaign, and, and as someone, again, that's been involved in, in politics as long as I have, and I, I'm i a very aware person, when I read something in the newspaper, I have this memory where I'll recall when I read something different from the same publication, sometimes even from the same journalist. And so for, for you, you know, there's been these ways that you are painted that I find to be 100% false framing and not accurate or true and and one of the big things was basically your your stance on abortion so i just want to take just a little bit of time to kind of have that conversation about you know how things got so twisted and and how things got put in a place that aren't actually true to the values that you hold now myself um one of the things that i saw that came out right from the jump is that you know Dr. Scott Jensen wants to ban abortion, uh, no exceptions. And and I knew that wasn't the case, right? Because the framing is um, everyone has a different perspective about where, you know, life begins and and things like that. But the framing is that you want to control women. So first thing I want to kind of put out there is that I looked into how you can actually um, you know, like overturn abortion in Minnesota. It's a very long process. It. I don't care who the governor is. It's constitutional law because of Gomez. I made a TikTok video on it. So I just want to ask you two parts to this question. Number one, is it that you want to control women? And number two, how important is it to you that the conversation um, really should be focused on moving, um, you know, moving the conversation forward past? this caricature of who you are. So those are kind of the two things I wanted to ask you about in regards to this.
2: Certainly, there's been a big effort to put me out there as some real extreme guy. And that's sort of funny because in my everyday life as a family doctor, I I think that's probably sort of the opposite of what people would consider me to be. I think they think that I'm a pretty calm, measured individual. And, and I think that when I was honored to be the uh, Family Doctor of the Year in Minnesota in 2016, I think a lot of people congratulated me on being someone who maintained equanimity and things like that but i i think that in terms of me being extreme politically i understand why the liberals are trying to do that that's probably one of their best strategies
0: it's the only thing they really got to yeah. be honest
2: but i i when i went into the legislature in 2016 i was elected i always thought that we're legislators make one of their biggest mistakes is when they legislate in conflict with human nature. And I think human nature is we all want to be, we're wired to be autonomous, independent. We don't want anyone else controlling us. That isn't to say that we can't be good team players and we'll help pull the rope in the same direction and all that. But I think human nature is that we want to be able to dream our dreams and go pursue our dreams and and be independent. So I do not want to control women. Mm-hmm. And I think when we talk about the conversation regarding abortion, I think it's important to remember several things. And perhaps I should lead with the most important thing, and that is that abortion in next month is not on the ballot. Because as you mentioned, AK, Dovey Gomez mm-hmm. interpreting uh, the Constitution makes it very clear that Abortion is a constitutionally protected right for all Minnesotans, literally to the time of delivery. Mm -hmm. And that's as clear as as day. And as you mentioned, for that to be overturned would involve a a constitutional amendment on the ballot. And that would be all Minnesotans deciding that. But I think the context really does matter. And so I think a lot of my words have been twisted, not just taking seven words out of a 15-minute speech, That would be taking it out of context, because I know that many of the conversations where I've been quoted, I thought we were talking about viable pregnancies, Mm -hmm. and I thought that pretty typically means somewhere past 24 weeks. And I did make comments that I think something like two-thirds of Minnesotans have indicated that they would not want elective abortions in the third trimester. Mm -hmm. I was also quoted as saying, I don't uh, provide exceptions for rape and incest. Well, I never thought we needed to. I always thought that the priority was the mom. I mean, clearly, as a family doctor, I've had the privilege of taking care of many, many pregnant women and delivering 500 children during the course of my career, and and what a joy that's been for me. But never for a moment did I ever think that abortion could be completely banned. If someone has a, a tubal pregnancy, that's basically incompatible with Uh, an emerging newborn life. And if you don't provide an abortion in that procedure, you will lose the life of the mom. So I've always thought that the mom's life was paramount and that if a pregnancy were endangering her physical or mental health, that that's all that needed to be said. At that point in time, it's not a question for the, the legal process. It's a personal, private discussion and decision between the patient and her doctor. So I realized that I probably had been thinking more as a doctor and as a someone who takes care of patients and has delivered babies. But in the political world, there are certain things you're supposed to articulate or say, and rape and incest were were two of them. So I did clarify, and I actually went further than that and said, well, it's not just rape and incest. It would be a variety of health care problems, to be sure. Again, physical or mental health problems related to the pregnancy sickle cell anemia, renal failure, being on chemotherapy during the pregnancy. There's so many things that I never thought that it would be wise to try to articulate an extensive list. Uh, and, and so to me, I think the best approach there is to always deal with the mom. But again, I think that it's really important to recognize that the conversation has completely changed with the turning overturning of Roe v. Wade. I think it's one thing to use political rhetoric in the course of trying to get an endorsement for a political party when you've got the law of the land being sort of a firm law for 50 years, 49 years. Mm -hmm. I think that's a conversation that's totally different than the kind of conversation we need to have now. I think we need to pivot. I think as a pro-life person, I want to be I want to be more than simply against something. I want to be for something. And I think this is a perfect opportunity for the pro-life movement to say, let's go out there and let's really stand side by side with women. Why don't we do what a lot of countries in Europe do and have birth control pills over the counter? Let's not mandate. That in order for a woman to get another year's worth of birth control prescription, they have to go in and spend three or four hundred dollars on a physical and a pap smear, which, if you look at the medical literature, provides very little benefit for the woman. And that's why in Europe, birth control pills are over the counter. We should put a ceiling cap on the price, maybe ten dollars a month. But the idea that a woman has to go out there and try to scrape together 90 bucks in order to get their monthly pack or whatever they have to pay, I don't think that's fair. And I think that this should be a societal a responsibility in terms of identifying how we wanna do family planning, how we wanna make certain that if at all possible, we can anticipate pregnancies and welcome them or pursue yeah. them. And I would love to have if a person wants to go the, line, the way of adoption, streamline adoption, and have a $2,500 tax credit for adoption. I think we need to do more for women in a real way. I don't know why we wouldn't have the morning-after pill in every medicine cabinet. It's um, It stops fertilization. It's not abortion. And uh, it's already over-the-counter. Why don't we do these things? Because let's be fair. Let's be honest with one another. Mm -hmm. If we have an unexpected or unanticipated sexual encounter or we have a sexual encounter where the condom breaks or something like that, do we really want that event to literally turn our world upside down? I don't think most people would want that. I wouldn't want that for my life or for for my family. Yeah. So I think we can do a lot more than what we've been doing. And I think this is an opportunity for us to recognize it's not on the ballot in November, but that doesn't mean the pro-life movement can't really stand up and say, we're going to stand side by side with women.
1: Yeah. Scott, you mentioned something that uh, I'm passionate about having been adopted when I was two years old, and that's the $2,500 tax credit for families that adopt. And you have these 10 point plans uh, that I want to dive into a little bit more, but can you, touch a little bit more on the adoption side of it and this tax credit that you're talking about.
2: One of the most heartbreaking things I encounter in my office is when I have a a young couple trying to have a family.
0: And you're talking about your practice, where you practice medicine as a doctor. As a family
2: doctor. Yeah. And They will go through the various steps. Oftentimes, it'll be a workup to make sure that there's an adequate sperm count, that eggs are being, if you will, uh, discharged every month from the ovaries, and that there's an opportunity for pregnancy to occur. Sometimes artificial insemination will be tried. And if all of that doesn't work, then oftentimes we work towards in vitro fertilization. What we're really going through there is this, this couple really wants to have a family, and they spend tens and tens of thousands of dollars pursuing it, and sometimes it doesn't happen. Adoption for them is like a life-giving family miracle. So I think that we need to honor and elevate adoption for both sides of the equation, Uh, the yearning parents and potentially the person who's experiencing a pregnancy that wasn't necessarily something that had been the pursued goal. And I think that a $2,500 tax credit would allow us to make certain that there's absolute coverage for financial implications. I think we also need to have a paid maternity leave programs in in place uh, for any delivering moms or, if you will, adoptive moms and dads. And I think we, we can do so much more than what we've done. And I don't think we can do that unless we have those hard conversations. Again, I'm going to go back to natural family planning, birth control, all those things, we should make that so available. This is challenging ground to say this, and I sometimes get myself in trouble, but I'm just going to say it. In the 1990s, we were struggling as a nation with the whole issue of abortion, and Bill Clinton coined a phrase that brought some peace to the kingdom, and that was safe, legal, and rare. Well, we've gone from 20,000 abortions per year, I think, in Minnesota in 1980 down to 10,000, but 10,000 is not rare. And I think that what if we could set our goal to be safe, legal, and ultimately unnecessary? Let's do such a good job. Let's stand by women and support them in so many ways so that family planning really hits a level, an achievement, an accomplishment like we've never gotten close to. If we did that and we brought abortion numbers from 10,000 down to 5,000, 2,000 because very few people look forward to a day where they might be able to have an abortion. That's not really in the cards for anyone, I don't think. But I really think that we have to have these hard conversations. I'm pro-life. I've spent so many hours, days, weeks, and months of my life trying to keep kids alive and giving them a fair shake in life that I think it would be hard for me not to be pro-life. But I certainly understand that the world has changed with Roe v. Wade being overturned. and I want to be sensitive to uh, women who say, I don't want that overturning of the Supreme Court to translate into me losing autonomy. I understand that. I do.
0: So one of the things that I always think is important to put in perspective is, again, when there's a narrative that is set, and I'm talking purely from a political strategy viewpoint, when when there's a narrative that is set – it becomes something that the average person that consumes your traditional media that doesn't go and search for other sources of uh, information, they come to believe that this is what the world looks like. And there's been a bunch of polls that have came out to show that there are issues that are um, really a lot more pressing to average everyday Minnesotans. And, And one of the biggest concerns that people have is crime. And, and I think that this yeah, is... Yeah, let's talk about crime. Like, honestly, this is this is the perspective that I, I think is important. We, we want to always talk about things that are relevant, especially when there's been this narrative that's been spun about you in regards to, to the issue of abortion. But when we talk about the things that Minnesotans care the most about, I know people care about that, but it's not the top issue because, let's be quite candid, if you're concerned about... If your life is going to be taken, if, if your child, if your loved one is going to be harmed, that trumps everything because that affects everybody. And so this administration, Tim Walls' administration, has failed hands down over and over and over again. And I wanted to ask you, what are you hearing from people as you're out talking? Because you're all over the state. You're talking to people left and right. How do people feel about crime in the state of Minnesota from your experience, what people are saying to you?
2: It's absolutely turned our lives upside down. We can't have our children playing in the front yard for fear of some bullet ricocheting off of a building or something like that, a drive-by shooting. If We didn't even used to keep track of uh, carjackings in, in past, but I think in 2021 we had some 780 carjackings.
1: Yeah, close to 800, I think. Yeah,
2: and I think if you look at uh, even looking this year – to 2019, uh, Tim Walz's first year, I think our homicide's up 200%. So I think this has absolutely poisoned our lives. And it's what's, what's so ironic, aka okay, to me is that Tim Walls and Keith Ellison have been very outspoken on social media saying abortion is a constitutionally protected right and no governor can change it. I agree with them. It's a constitutionally protected right and no governor, no governor can change it. So then in the next breath, Tim Wall says, so you got to vote for me so it it doesn't get changed. It can't be changed. You just said that. That's going to be a Minnesota thing whenever they do. And I I would tell people, two-thirds of Minnesotans do not want a total ban on abortion. But what people really do want is they want safety restored in their lives. And they are coming out in a powerful way. If I'm talking to the millennials, 25 to 40, the Gen Zs, 10 to 25 they're highlighting it. They wanna feel safe. They wanna be able to go downtown Minneapolis, go to a ball game, go to a play, have dinner, not have to worry about looking over their shoulder. If you talk to the minorities, the minorities are crying out for restored public safety. If you talk to moms and dads, absolutely crying out for safety. So I think that public safety is not just a political slogan this is literally something that's turned our lives upside down. If we look at our Constitution to ensure the domestic tranquility, promote the general welfare, it isn't happening. If you look at the Minnesota Constitution, the security, benefit, and protection of the people, it isn't happening. Literally, our world has been turned upside down. And arguably, you could say that literally Tim Walls is the godfather of the lawlessness that has invaded not just Minnesota, but the entire nation.
1: He had set Tim, the tone for he, sure. Had
2: he had he put the National Guard out there and stopped this instead of waiting for TV journalists to beg, where's our governor? And then telling Jacob Fry, the mayor of Minneapolis, that he hadn't applied for help in the correct way. And then telling the National Guard basically, well, you're a bunch of 19-year-old cooks. I mean, that really harkens back to, I think, Tim Wall's lack of leadership responsibility even in 2005 when he made the decision to quit the National Guard after he had accepted the highest promotion rank for an enlisted person as a a master sergeant major. His battalion was expecting him to be their leader, and yet when they were advised they were going to be deployed to Iraq, Tim Walls quit 15 years later. He quits on the guard again. Says, "I'm not letting you folks out there. I don't. Th- I don't know that you can handle the job." And then, remarkably, he, he did it even more. Not just to National Guard, he did it to to the police. He did it to the cops in the third precinct when he said, "Stand down." Then at the state fair about a month ago, he made the comment that the reason that he let the third precinct burn was because that was the best advice from law enforcement, seeming to yeah, blame. Yeah, I still
1: I still have no idea who gave him that advice because uh, it did not come from officers.
2: I don't think that's, it did. That's for sure. I think it was a bareface lie. I do. I think that it was one of those situations where he said 80% of kids didn't miss 10 days of in-classroom instruction. Minnesota is one of the safest states in the nation. These things just seem to bubble out of his mouth like a burp. And uh, he's just saying this is the way it is. And then he says the same thing about the third precinct. I think that's one of the reasons why he's not interested in, in, in debating because
1: he's, he's going to get caught. Where do we stand on the debates? Where are you at?
2: Well, right now... Uh, we've said, listen, we're not interested in making the rules. We would let NPR or KSTP or CBS or whoever's going to sponsor the debate, I'd be glad to bring cookies and donuts and coffee or something like that, but anytime, anywhere. But uh, Tim Walz has said no live audiences, and he said he'll allow one debate on October 18th in Rochester, and the coverage will be the media, I think, in Rochester, Mankato, maybe St. Cloud but the Minneapolis-St. Paul networks somehow are not being invited in. On October 28th, he's allowed a radio debate, I think, with NPR, and that's it. Now, Channel 5, I think, came out and said that for Minnesota, debate night is the 23rd of October from 6 to 9, and they had pictures of uh, Steve Simon and Kim Crockett for uh, Secretary of State and Jim Schultz and... Uh, Keith Ellison for Attorney General, and then Scott Jensen for Governor. So there's five pictures on this ad during the Vikings <laughs> game. No Governor Walls, because evidently Governor Walls says no. He's doing one radio, one TV, and that's it. And I think it's interesting when he ran in 2018 as a non-incumbent. I think there were I think there was about a half a dozen debates. And if you go back to 2010 with Dayton and Emmer, I think there were 26 debates. But this time around we get to have the one in Farm Fest and then we get one on TV in Rochester and it sounds like we're gonna have one on the
0: radio. You know, gotcha. one of the one of the things that I think is important to be able to to tell our listeners and for people to be able to have this conversation, you just you perfectly encapsulated the issue is there is not an apparatus in the Twin Cities, unfortunately, they don't have an appetite for it, the media, to actually try and hold walls accountable. So we have to kind of go through all of these different platforms to be able to really get these conversations out there. And again, when when we talk about what is the truth, what is the actual perspective that people um, can glean from from these conversations, I want people to be able to understand who Dr. Jensen truly is. And so, you know... You live and breathe like everyone else. Um, your your wife is an amazing woman. Like she is, the- who's a the
1: better golfer? You were married. <laughs> Well, this has been
2: a tough year for me. So, <laughs> I think I'm going to I'm going to say no comment. <laughs> you know, she's the, a good player. She is a club champion for the seniors, both gross and net.
0: And so like so to me, honestly, th- th- these are things that people don't really get to see as much. Uh, they don't get to hear it because they have these caricatures of of who people are. And so you've you've been with your wife for a, a very long time. You, you know, you're telling before we started that um, you know, you guys, like my wife and I, we got married, I met her when I was 18, got engaged when I was 19, we got married when I was 20 and I'm 38. So we've been through everything from when we were poor and had nothing um, to now. And so that's important. And in, in you've had this amazing relationship with your wife and I think that's important. So tell me like, how, how does Mary handle you running for office and hearing the lies that go out there about you? Like, you know, what's that like?
2: Well, she started a thing for the two of us about six years ago. She said, Scott, we've got to start having coffee every morning together for at least 10, 15 minutes. We Sometimes are like ships passing in the night. We're both busy. She's a veterinarian, and she just retired uh, a couple of years ago. So we have coffee every morning. Um, sometimes it's 6 o'clock in the morning. Sometimes it's 5.30. Most of the time it's closer to 7. And we'll talk about things. And I can tell when she's got something on her mind, and I'll say, Oh, what's rumbling around in, in your head today? And she'll she'll frequently say, "I'm just so frustrated about politics. You don't get a chance to share with with people how you'd solve this problem. You don't even get a chance to have a conversation beyond getting maybe a 10-second sound bite." And so, Mary's, I think as many spouses are, she's absolutely. Um, a protector for me. She gets angry when she feels like I've been treated <laughs> unfairly. We've been together 44 years. We've got three lovely kids, uh, Jack's family doc, Christy's an anesthesiologist, and Matt's an attorney. But I still remember the early days. We were, we were both 23 when we got married, and I remember uh, we had no money at all. In order for us to go to a movie and go out to eat, we'd use happenings coupons where we could go and split a salad and we could each get the movie price, half price, half price. And uh, we could spend less than $10 and have a nice night out. And and then as life progressed, we got to a point where we could actually buy a piece of furniture that wasn't on a consignment sale and things <laughs> like that, which is fine. Because I think back to the early days, and those were precious days. But I think right now where Mary and I are at is uh, we like winning. We work hard to win, but we're not afraid to lose. And Mary has absolutely blossomed. She is inclined to be a little bit of a, an introvert, but she's absolutely blossomed. And I mean, she's had a chance to spend time with both of you and she adores you both.
0: And she's so awesome. I, she's an awesome person. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's she's such a genuine person. Yeah. And and honestly, that's it's so rare. It's it's a toll on the family. Like you, you know, it's not to be woe is me. You chose to run for office. You felt you were called, and, and this is what you have to do. But a lot of times family doesn't get credit. And and I myself, I've never ran for office. But I've been around enough people that have that you're running, but your spouse is there. Your your you know even your children um, to a certain uh, degree and extent, but especially your spouse, they're there and, and they're with you. And and I, um, I think that that's such an amazing prospect to be able to to have someone that's there because for honestly, for some people, it's, it's too much of a toll. And, uh, you know, it, your relationship, I imagine, uh, is strengthened through, through everything. And so one of the things that I also wanted to kind of have a discussion about is you're a person that deeply cares about human beings, right? Uh, You practice medicine. Um, and I remember there was a story where uh, there was an accident outside of your practice and you went to, to try and render aid. And I thought to me, like, that's, it's such a powerful thing that you 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 didn't do it because you wanted to make headlines you did it because it's the right thing so i i wanted to ask you you know why do you have such a heart for people you know is that something that you've had since you were young um you know since you were a kid like when did you know you wanted to practice medicine and and how is it that for you Uh, you know, you want to incorporate that into being a governor.
2: Well, my mom was a devout Christian growing up. So, I mean, I was certainly going to get a lot of Bible learning from her, but my dad wasn't. My dad was more of an agnostic, but he also really valued the Ten Commandments. But the thing he really valued, he was always reinforced what mom was telling us and taking us to Sunday school and stuff. But he oftentimes would refer to the golden rule. He said, treat others like you'd want to be treated. And that really is stuck. So I probably, in my, in my medical career, I've probably been at least a dozen times called in to help in a situation where I wasn't, if you will, the physician of record. Uh, I remember taking care of a gentleman who had a, a stroke on an airplane and uh, died in my arms uh, um, about 10 minutes outside of Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport. And you're referencing a situation about two months ago where I was working that morning doing some surgery in our Chaska office, and uh, there was a motorcycle and a semi-accident, and uh, my staff came and said, Dr. Jansen, someone's hurt outside. And there was no question. I started running out the door. I said, tell my patients I'll be late. And uh, we went out there and we administered pulmonary resuscitation and uh, worked hard. I, I was disappointed when I got on the scene because uh, in my initial assessment, it was very clear that... Uh, uh, the pupils were not reactive, and also there was uh, uh, blood coming from one ear, and that tells you that generally you have some sort of intracranial hemorrhage. And so I knew things were tough, and uh, yeah, that, that gentleman did not um, survive the day. But um, I think that I would want anyone to do that for me or to do that for my family, and so that means I have to do that for others. I remember one time stopping at an accident and telling Mary to please keep the kids in the car, And I had to pronounce three people dead and took care of one person until the ambulance got there. And uh, but I I think that makes me uh, it makes me more human. It makes me more vulnerable because I I think that's what we're supposed to do.
1: Yeah. You know, I want to I want to talk a little bit about your support of law enforcement and public safety. Um, First of all, thank you for that. You have not wavered on that one bit throughout this campaign. I've got to know you. And um, you know, I've got text messages from you at 10:30 at night talking about public safety or about officers, and uh, uh, you really, you're really passionate about it. And I, I'm, I thank you if, on behalf of myself and my partners that uh, that support you as well. Some of the challenges facing law enforcement and police officers, and I want to know your plans for this. Um, how do we keep? officers in this profession what what are your 10 point plans for this how how do we change the narrative how do we have the support to uh, to have people wanting to join this profession
2: well thank you for um, calling out my support of the police I think that for me the police have always been the good guys or the good gals I often have thought, what would the medical profession look like if every time we had an outcome that wasn't ideal, it was on the front page of the paper? I don't, think, I don't think patients would want us to take their appendix out if it was inflamed. They'd have so little confidence. And I think one of the most important things a governor can do is use the bully pulpit to elevate the work that the police do. I think most people recognize very clearly we need more cops on a street corner. We need a restorative justice program. We need to use incarceration as a tool to stop, repeat violent felons. We need to understand that mandatory minimum sentences mean that, a mandatory minimum sentence. We need to enforce the law. But we're in a conundrum right now. And I think the people who really should be called out and praised for being supportive of the police are the minority communities because they've been clear. So many of the minority communities have said, we need public safety. We need the police here. We may need them more here than there. We may need them coming from the ranks of our own communities. But I think the minority communities have been very clear that they're not for what Ilhan Omar had done when she called out and said that the police were a cancer and should be de- dismantled and defunded they're saying absolutely not so i really give credit and kudos to so many minority communities for understanding how important police are to making a community safe and better in terms of what can we do with the right now emergency we're facing i think we have got to say listen what is it that police need to protect their livelihood they're putting their lives on the line well and they need qualified immunity without question. They need also to be honored and understood that when they start a shift in the morning, they may not know if they're gonna come home at night. But I think to get more cops in the street corner, so to speak, we need to recruit, but sometimes more effective in recruiting is retaining. And that means we need to go to the, the police today and say, what. What is it that you're missing? And and I'm sure that the police would be reasonable and have that conversation, but what would make your life better, safer, uh, more uplifting, and your work and your profession so that you would go out to schools and you would tell 7th or 8th graders or ninth or 10th graders that a career in law enforcement can be one of the most gratifying, satisfying careers you could ever ask for? Because that's what we need. We need our present men and women in blue – telling others, this is an honorable profession that I wouldn't trade for anything. I think that's one of the starting points is, how do we retain the cops that we have today? I think we have to recruit, but recruiting takes time. And you know, Jai, better than I, that in days gone by, you might have three or four police positions open, and you might have more than 100 applicants. And today it's a flip. Yeah. I mean, today you can have 100 spots open and you don't even get 30 applicants. And 30 applicants may not all necessarily be equipped to be a police officer. So I think that we're going to have to do some creative things. And I think one of those things is going to have to be we're going to have to go back into the, into the market where police have left or retired and say, we need you back. We need you to come back in. Tell us what you need, what would fit. We need you here for five years. We need you to help help if you will, bridge this crisis that we're in. We need to start tracking kids in school. If kids want to have a consideration for a career in law enforcement, we need to make sure they have a chance to shadow, that they understand and grow, that some of their coursework matches up with some of their goals. No different than me. When I thought I wanted to be a doctor, I was able to sort of track in through biology, chemistry, and physics. We can do those same kinds of things, but we've got to be very, very creative. And I think we also need to make sure we don't fall into the trap, which so oftentimes happens where we're asking cops to do everything I think we do that with, I mean, literally cops are asked to be psychologists. They're asked to be enforcers. They're asked to be uh, mediators. There are so many things that we're asking. And sometimes we're asking the cops to be daycare. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to say, hold it. There have got to be some boundaries. This is crazy. In medicine, we've been pretty strong about creating boundaries in terms of what you can ask a doctor to be. But I don't think we've done that for teachers. And I don't think we've done it for cops.
1: Yeah, I think also – everybody in this profession understands to move this profession in the right direction. There are reforms that need to be put in place too. Uh, Tell me some of your thoughts on um, what kind of reform you would like to see for public safety.
2: Well, I think we've done a pretty crappy job overall in dealing with real mental health. We pay a lot of lip service to it. And so if you do a really crummy job on mental health, there's two areas that are really going to get hit by that. One is medicine, especially emergency rooms. And two will be the cops. And because that's the intersection, uh, we're seeing suicides or suicidal attempts. Uh, we're perhaps seeing uh, crimes committed, uh, born not necessarily of a, a violent spirit as much as an uncontrolled mental health crisis, things like that, as well as clearly the drug overdose situation that's become truly epidemic as well. But I think what we need to do is we need to train cops to understand this is a situation where you need to potentially stand down and recognize you're dealing with a mental illness crisis go ahead and let it let pause be pressed and and get in the team that will best be able to deal with it I think that's one thing I think a lot of times uh, cops just like surgeons have a, a view that okay you know I'm here I've got to take care of this I will take care of this and sometimes in surgery we also have to press pause and say okay this isn't going the way we'd expected. We're going to press pause. This is what we're going to do. We're going to have to take an alternative pathway. So I think that's one thing. We need to, we need to make sure that cops understand that they don't have to do everything all the time. They need sometimes to triage the situation and say, okay, this situation requires this. And I think the cops are open to that. And I think if we also can start to do a better job of getting communities and cops connected so they understand one another, I think that goes a long ways it's it's hard, I think, as a physician to apologize when something goes wrong. I think it's hard for a cop to apologize. Part of that is fraught with downstream complications from saying sorry or I feel so bad that this is what happened. I can't help but think of Kim Potter. I I, I mean, I don't know Kim Potter, but I did a fair amount of reading on her and Everything I can gather is that she was a fine, upstanding officer who was respected by her colleagues, who was involved in helping train younger police officers in training. And she made a horrible mistake. And she knew it in a moment. She cried. She wept. She didn't try to be duplicitous or try to dodge or weave. I I just think of that. And I think of what if the situation in a parallel universe had been me doing a surgery and I made a mistake. I thought that I had this instrument in my hand, and instead I had this one, and instead of repairing this critical vessel, I severed it. And all of a sudden, things went from bad to horrific, and I lost a patient. The situations have been treated so differently. So those are some things I think we can do. I think training is huge. I think whatever we do in a moment of decision, I think those moment demanding decisions right now, those are the ones that we really have to develop muscle memory so that we don't do this, but instead we do this. And it's, it's, it's critical when you're dealing with life and death. And I think we can do that. But then I think the other thing is, if we could create a, if you will, a development process in the departments that both the rank and file cops, as well as if you will, the leaders the chiefs and the sheriffs and that they're all comfortable that it works and that we also have if you will citizen involvement says yeah that really makes sense because if this or this or this happens we can reconcile what happened we can move through this fairly quickly and we can learn what we need to learn so that we can be better the next time around
0: yeah you know honestly the conversations that we're having today i hope are opening um to people that maybe haven't had a chance. To really hear more about who you are as a person um and, uh, and on your stances and the thing that i think is important for everyone you can always go to to dr jensen's website and take a look at all of his 10-point plans because you have 10-point plans um, and, and read more about your specific policy that's important 100 um, percent. but i i think it's better to get to know who you are as a person and and you you touched on on one aspect that i think is important everyone has in my opinion um different touchstones throughout their life that will shape them into having a different understanding of things for me that touchstone was my father he passed away from cancer and and witnessing him pass away and and having him in hospice was something that really did uh, change the way that I look at things and and I know that you um, had a moment like that with your brother. And and I just kind of wanted to, you know, one, do you think that I'm onto something when I say that those touchstones in life will inform on someone? And, and two, how does that, again, strengthen you as as a governor um, of dealing with the loss of, of your brother?
2: I remember that day so vividly. I got home about 11 at night and Mary said, I don't know what's going on, Scott, but you better give the emergency room a call. They've called three times and I've only been home myself 10 minutes. And so I called the ER and I was basically told that someone had jumped from an 18-story building and they had no identification on them other than a small piece of paper that said Scott Jensen with my phone number on it. And they had thought that it was me that was dead. And they said that, uh, and so I said, well, no. And I'd been at meetings and so they said, well, we've got a body that's got just your name on it. And I thought, well, maybe it's a patient. I didn't know. And uh, so I had to go down to to the morgue in the wee hours in the morning and identify the body, and it was my brother, Bruce. And when my dad had died of colon cancer a few years earlier, and my mom had died even earlier than that from colon cancer, my dad had asked me if I would be willing to take on the responsibility for Bruce's health, because Bruce did have some mental illness. And sometimes he made decisions that weren't always the best decisions. So he committed suicide two weeks after his 30th birthday. He'd been at a particularly good place, it seemed. Uh, my brother had been with him a week earlier, and Steve had thought that Bruce was doing well. So I felt like I had failed Bruce, and it was a pretty pretty piercing time to have to see his broken body and to know that at some level, you couldn't help but wonder, could I have done something different? Could I have done something better? could I have been there more consistently somehow? So yeah, I think that's definitely a touch point and I think for mental illness, it's um, it, it really brings me uh, right to the uh, right to the patient. I, I think the patient needs, to be absolutely afforded the best care possible, and I feel like in mental health, we just aren't there. Our system is so driven by so many factors that so many physicians would much rather take care of a strep throat or a congestive heart failure patient or reduce a a radius fracture of the forearm than to have to deal with the challenging interaction that goes with someone who's really uh, falling apart mentally and potentially suicidal because there's just so much pressure and it's so hard to know if you're making headway.
0: Yeah. And so as, as, you know, again, these touchstones happen, um, I know for me, uh, it, it really had this impact of how I, how I live my life. And, you know, for yourself, um, running for governor, you know, mental health is clearly something that is important to you. Uh, myself, my, my sister, um, has uh, a form of schizophrenia and um, it going through that process, you know it, it, I came to understand something different than I believe the system worked. and I think that what you typically see from Democrats is this throw money at a solu- you know at a problem and and hope that it finds its rightful home And I think that, that's where they get things wrong I, and and i have so many things that i believe that are wrong about our, our mental health in our healthcare system in which um having someone that understands the complexities and so i think that you can bring that to the table when it comes to um you know making sure the right people are in place as governor um and so i think that's important for people to understand that you know you're not a a, a what the media would say, this cold-hearted Republican that doesn't care about human beings and nothing could be further from the truth. So thank you for sharing um, how how that experience, you know, affected your life.
2: Bruce did have schizophrenia as well. And uh, there were times you could have a conversation with Bruce and for an hour or two, or go to a movie and you'd never know it. And that's what's so tricky about schizophrenia. But AK, I'm going to have to push back a little bit on your comment there. I think that we've done a poor enough job in terms of dealing with mental health that I wouldn't blame one party or the other. I think there's enough blame to go around for everybody. I think sometimes we pay some problem, especially like mental health, we pay it lip service, but we're really not doing it. And I think there are those people out there who pay profound, passionate lip service. And sometimes their, their agenda may not be as pure as they present it. I think that we need to be careful to not think that this is gonna be solved simply with more dollars. Mm-hmm. We have to reorient the way we care for people. And I don't think we're doing that. So I think, no question, we need to provide the financial support necessary to do a good job mm-hmm. on multiple levels, whether you're talking acute care, whether you're talking acute deterioration or whether you're talking about chronic care. But I do think that we're not we're not serious enough about getting to the heart of the problem. And I think politics really gets in the way because to sit around a table like this with maybe three or four other people, perhaps experts in the field, far more knowledgeable than perhaps the three of us could be, we can't get at the heart of the solution unless we're willing to ask the really hard questions. And to ask the really hard questions in this day and age that's so darn political, you you dare not. Mm-hmm. Because It'll get on Twitter or Facebook before you get home, and you'll be seen as some sort of demon. And all you're trying to do is, can we really focus on getting to the heart of this? How do we fix the same things happening with the overdoses and the fentanyl? Yeah, I mean, we tried to do something in the legislature in terms of making sure physicians are more aware of the fact that they're part of the problem in terms of getting people addicted to opiates. Yeah, I grant you, physicians have played a role in that to be sure. But we toughened up the uh, the laws substantially in regards to opiate prescribing, narcotic prescribing. And we are seeing record-breaking mm-hmm. overdose deaths with two-thirds of them being fentanyl-based, I think over 100,000 last year in America. So we, we clearly are not having the kind of productive conversations we need to have.
0: Yeah, and to me, this always comes back to a question of leadership. And I think that if you're a Minnesotan and you are thinking about, ah, I don't know who I should vote for. Maybe maybe you voted Democrat for a long time. Look around and see what failure of leadership looks like. And, and I genuinely think that you have the mind and you have the heart to understand what it takes to be an effective leader. And, and I think that Walls had his chance and he failed miserably. And I think that anyone that's listening should give you an opportunity. And hopefully this conversation today was able to show more of what you are as a human being, because I think that's the thing that we lose so much of in, in politics is we're human beings. We, you know, like, yes, we, we have political ideologies, but at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're human beings, but how does our leadership look? And I think that you have the qualities to be able to lead this state of Minnesota. And so for anyone, again, that's that's listening and watching this, please uh, take a look at what Dr. Scott Jensen has and hopefully this conversation helped help bring um, some better understanding of who he is as a person.
2: Thank you so much. And uh, rest assured, if I'm elected governor, I will make mistakes. And uh, rest assured, I will palm my fist on the table and say, the buck stops at my desk. That's on me.
0: Well, I appreciate yeah. you coming on the show. Thank you, this Jeff. is this has been episode one, Jai. Uh, again, anyone that's 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 watching and listening, uh, hopefully you like what it is that we're doing. We have our YouTube page. Um, we are, are streaming there and also on Facebook. Make sure that you share this episode. This is the only way that this information is going to get out there. The corporate mainstream media is not going to pick up on these stories. It takes you as a listener and as a supporter of the show to be able to get the message out there. So please do that. Like it, share it, send it to your grandma in email form, uh, embed, embed Real the fast, video.
1: I do want to say we did invite Governor Walls to come on the show and you we did. have not heard back.
0: That's right. We we invite people from, from all uh, political ideologies. But this has been episode one. As you watch, you're going to see that, you know, it's, it's a new podcast so we're going to get some kinks out. And uh, as we as we continue to hone our craft and do our thing, we appreciate everyone that hangs on and supports what it is that we do as a show. I'm AK Kamara. And I'm Jai Hanson. And before we go, for anyone that has you know, been sitting there and they're like, you know, this Black Lives Matter, defund the police, a boss of police, you've been thinking about, yeah, maybe you don't like any cops. I, I want you to know that <laughs> there is a great... Uh, political ad that was put out by Senator Kennedy down in Louisiana. It has the greatest line, and hopefully my producer Gabe, I'm not throwing you too far off of a loop, but from now going forward, anytime I hear someone that talks negatively about cops and says that they hate cops because they're cops, I want them to consider this amazing line from this commercial. Look, if you hate cops just because they're cops, the next time you get in trouble, Call a crackhead. That's right. Call a crackhead <laughs> if you hate cops. <laughs> the next time you're in trouble, I'm AK Kamara. I'm Jai Hansen. Peace.